Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Uh, we're bringing you kind of an epic episode tonight because, first of all, we're back to recording a book. Recording a book or reviewing a book? <laughs> and um, in addition to reviewing a book, we're actually going to be interviewing that book's author. Um, so kind of a mix-up. I don't think we have, we've done an interview slash review in the same episode for quite a while. Um, it feels like we haven't done a book in quite a yeah. while. <laughs> There's that, too. Um, the book we're going to be talking about tonight is Entropy and Bloom by friend of the podcast, Jeremy Robert Johnson. Um, here's a quick bio before we dive into things. Jeremy Robert Johnson is the Wonderland Award-winning author of cult hits Skullcrack City, which we reviewed here. We Live Inside You, which we reviewed here. Angel Dust, Apocalypse, and Extinction Journals, as well as the Stoker-nominated novel Siren Promised with Alan M. Clark. His fiction has been acclaimed by the Washington Post and Publishers Weekly, authors such as David Wong and Jack Ketchum, and has appeared internationally in numerous anthologies and magazines. We're going to forego any type of synopsis because this is a collection of uh, short stories and one novella. I guess it would be a novella yeah. length, right? And one novella. Some of these stories we've talked about before. Um, some we might be talking about for the first time. Some of these short stories may be one of my favorite short stories of all time. That may come up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we're going to do this time, um, there are a total of 16 stories. We're going to collectively kind of talk about the sleep of judges, the, the novella, a little bit. Um, but out of the other 15, Rob and I have each selected two that we thought were standout for one reason or another. And we're uh, we're going to you know kind of address those stories specifically. Maybe things will come up about the other stories. Maybe we'll talk about an award-winning short film. Who knows? But uh, Rob, would you like to kick it off by talking about your first standout story in this collection? Yeah. Um, so the story that I want to talk about first is called The League of Zeros. Uh, in which um, the narrator is our protagonist, and um, we see everything from his point of view. And basically, he lives in a, it seems kind of post-apocalyptic um, American society where um, you gain social clout through your body modifications. Um, and the goal for our, the protagonist is to do a unique enough body modification to be joint to, to be allowed into a group called the league of zeros. And so, um, man, like, and it, and it starts, here's, here's why I can't, it starts, it's the first story in the book. And we, we've talked about in the past, the whole idea of starting strong and ending strong and all that stuff. And, um, the first paragraph of this story is talking about how this woman has no lips I'm sorry, it's the actual, it's the first sentence after the first paragraph, but she's the one who wanted to have her lips removed, and I was like, whoa, I am in, in such a big way. Um, so, yeah, just a really interesting look at what people will do to put them, make themselves unique, and, and how that could go too far. And for the ladies, that might have been a tip on how you can get Rob's attention, too, if you remove your lips. Rob is in, I believe is what he said. <laughs> well, I'm interested at the very least, but, uh, yeah. um, there are, I mean, like I am a fan of, there's been a lot of body modifications that have, you know, raised my eyebrow over the years, but, um, I kind of like lips being where they're supposed to be. Uh, it's one of the, there, there, okay. There are two types of stories in this book. There are the ones that are, um, 
little on the gross side in some cases, but more just weird out there. And this definitely um, is is one of the weirder ones that I don't want to say can't take place in reality. Hasn't taken place in reality is probably uh, how I feel safe saying it, because who knows on where we're headed with body modification. But yeah, definitely um, flexing his muscle in the weird category with that uh, with that League of Zeros. Yeah, that's great stuff. What do you got? My first one is Disassociative Skills, which is really a story about a boy who just does really weird shit just to do weird shit. So he would probably fit in pretty well. I think he could get himself a spot in the League of Zeros, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if he has um, uh, like a like vision, like his vision is very short. That's, like that's, he doesn't like plan for the future. That's that's, that's true. <laughs> um, basically, he does terrible things to himself just to see what what he can get away with and and what it feels like and stuff. And uh, oddly enough, you know, it it uh, through the course of the story, it, it has an effect on his family. I don't want to spoil anything, but um, just really enjoyed the 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 mindset of of the the, the protagonist in that story. And again, that would fall into the kind of very weird category for for this book yeah i took it as kind of a commentary on um people who inflict pain on themselves um to feel like that type of psychological thing like if you're a cutter or something like that like an extreme example of that but Mm -hmm. i will say that i identify with the feeling the general feeling of like i want to know what i can endure like um and i don't know if like it's just kind of one of the things I joke around with my coworkers that I've I've never been punched in the face and I want to know what it feels like. Like I want to know that I can take a punch. And and I got kind of a, that kind of feeling from from this story too. Uh yeah, no, I, I definitely think there's something there. I think that might have been kind of an invitation <laughs> to the general public, maybe. <laughs> yeah, anybody in the general um San Jose area who wants to give me a actually I shouldn't say that because I live really close to David James Keaton now, so I don't want that guy punching me. Have you ever seen the movie Penn and Teller get killed? No. Okay, so the premise of it is is exactly that. Penn, during an interview, they play themselves in the movie, and during an interview says something about the lines of... Oh, it'd be kind of cool to see if like someone was trying to kill us, like you know how that would go down or whatever. And of course, someone then takes takes them to task by trying to kill them through the course of the movie. So that's what that reminded me of. Yeah. Well. Um, I hope that. I hope. I hope that I don't have someone following me around trying to punch me in the face, because that would not be fun. Um, it make for a nice update in a, in a future episode of the podcast, but please. Don't actually try to punch please, me. Let's work it out. Please, if you if you do, just get video. Yeah, that's all I'm asking for. Yeah, like don't um, punch Rob, but if you do, please send me the video. Yeah, send Liv a snap. We have an Instagram page now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have an Instagram. We have access to our Instagram page again, which is wonderful. <laughs> Rob, yeah. tell us about your second standout story. <laughs> Turns out it's easier to check out your Instagram page when you're signed into it. Um, so uh, this. <laughs> Second story I want to talk about in this book is called Snowfall. Um, and uh, I don't know how much I want to say about this, but um, it involves a deaf child. And um, should I say what happens? Because it's only ever implied. Yeah, you, I mean, you pretty much have to. Yeah. So, like, 
it's a deaf child and there's a nuclear attack or a nuclear, you know, winter happens, but like nuclear something happens and this kid wakes up to, um, you know, the, the nuclear winter part of it, the aftermath of it. Um, but in like this way of just like this childish wonder, cause he, he obviously doesn't know what's really going on, but like his innocent interpretation of the scene makes everything that much more terrifying and sad. Like it was such a deft, like kind of, um, contrast to what the usual story would be that it was just so, so greatly done. Yeah. Easily the saddest story. Um, in in the in the collection, and I, I think that almost falls on the normal one. I mean, I realize we don't have nuclear winter, but that almost falls into a a likely and possible type of story. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. so. I, I would put that in the. I mean, a stretch of the. There's a little suspension of your disbelief by, like you know, this kid somehow. Anyway, aside from the like, <laughs> aside from the. The, the kid actually being in that situation. Yeah. It's all real world. Totally possible. Yep. My second and uh, final of the short stories that I want to talk about is uh, Rob. This is one of the best short stories ever written by, by my accounting. Um, I might now, have heard that a lot. Yeah. For yeah. The last one six of, years. One of the, I'm even going to go. I debated, I debated. Cause when I say one of the best, I have to start thinking like, is it the best? What is it? What are my other? And I have to like weigh them. Yeah. So I debated. I'm actually going to go and say this. It's the second best short story that I've ever read, which I still think is fucking amazing. So I don't want to slight <laughs> anybody by um, saying that. But, you know, someone says, oh, that's one of my favorites or that's whatever. Like, where does it really rank? Yeah, but so that means rank. you definitely know what your first favorite short story is. I do. Am I supposed to talk about that here? I'm going to ask you to. It's up to you whether you choose to or not. I don't I, think I, that. I, Johnson is going to be uh, insulted by any in any okay. by any means. I uh, I may have mentioned it here on the podcast before, but um, Alyssa Nutting wrote a short story called Potential Force um, a few years ago. It may only be available online. That's where I read it on a on a website, and I apologize, I don't have it. Like I don't know what website it was on. Um, but it's about uh, it's about two sisters, teenage sisters, and some things they go through. That's all I'm going to say about that. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the sharp-dressed man at the end of the line. I'm thinking anybody who has uh, who's familiar with Johnson's body of work probably knew this is where I was heading with this. Um, it is, uh, oddly enough, it might take place in the same post-nuclear um, world as the previous story. Um, it is about a man who prepares for the end of the world. Um, by utilizing, I mean, God, I think everybody's read this by now. He, he makes a suit out of cockroaches because cockroaches will survive the uh, nuclear um, apocalypse. And I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't, but there is one other item that is believed to be able to survive the nuclear apocalypse, and that comes into play um, <laughs> actually in the title of this uh, of this story. Um, this was your first time reading it, right? Yeah, this is my first time reading it. Did I talk it up too much for you? Like, was it a letdown? And no, it was really good. Um, I could see why you liked it so much. I, I don't know if I was, I fell so far in love with it, but um, I, I, I think it's a very good story. 
that story that put uh, that put Johnson on the map for me personally, and um, will likely be. I, I hate to say this, but I, I don't know. I don't know, Jeremy. I don't know if you can outdo that one for me. Wow, wow. Well, um, yeah, I totally dug it. I agree. It is. It is a very, very good short story. I'm. I'm trying not to sound like I'm giving it a participation award because you're so enthusiastic about it. <laughs> God damn it! I love that. I love that story so much. <laughs> Now, I will say that there were other stories I tried to um, lean toward when I chose the stories that I wanted to talk about. Ones that we didn't read from other stuff like um, We Live Inside You. Um, but there's a lot of stories. There's some stories in here that I, re- I re- recognize. I couldn't think of the word recognize. Recognize from reading uh, We Live Inside You. Like the Persistent Hunting, I think. Persistence Hunting was one of them. Um Trigger Variation, I know I've read before. Cathedral Mother, I know I've read before. So just a handful of stories that are really great. I think that um, when we talked about Johnson's work in the past, Persistence Hunting, the one about the runner uh, in Portland, was one that we spent a good amount of time talking about because it's a really, really good story. But, um, I, yeah. I would have mentioned that again this time, too, if we hadn't talked about it previously. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the choices we made aren't to say that they are necessarily better than the other ones, but um, if you want to hear or talk about some of these other stories, go back and listen to our review of um, We Live Inside You, which is probably below the 100 mark as far as, like, episode number, because it was a long time ago. Um, But, yeah, lots of other good stories in here, too. I just wanted to kind of draw attention to some newer, some things that are newer to me or that we haven't talked about on the podcast already. I just want to clarify my stance on that because I don't want Rob to speak for both of us. The Sharp Dressed Man at the End of the Line's best best story in this collection and and better than most other collections too. Um, all right, well, Livius, I think your your point has been made. <laughs> all right, I'm done talking <laughs> about it. Okay, that was the each of us picked two of our standout stories. Now we're going to talk kind of collectively about the Sleep of Judges, which is the by far the largest story in this uh, in this collection. I read it digitally, so I don't have a page count, but it's it's definitely um, significantly bigger than than everything else. Yeah, and um, if I remember correctly, it is the it is new for this collection. I don't know if there's other new stories for this collection, but this is definitely an original, first time being published story, right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So, Sleep of Judges. Um, I, I guess we could just talk about this like it's a book, right? But like compacted a little bit? Yes. Yeah. I, yes. All right. So, um, kind of starts out pretty innocently. This um, this guy and his wife and daughter are headed home after an event. And um, as he's going inside, he notices like the TV is missing from its mounted place on the on the wall. And he panics. Um, because he thinks that someone either has broken in, obviously, or is still in the house, and um, tells his his wife to take their kid and and um, go somewhere safe, go to her mom's house or whatever, so that like he can kind of secure the house and make sure that it's safe for for his family. Yeah, and then he goes through. I think what normal people would go through, right? So, I mean, he does, you know, he calls the police and and some weird kind of things happen there. But, you know, all of it seems okay. But he starts to 
go through the steps that I imagine somebody would when they lose a, a, a property in their house due to a theft or whatever. So he wants to reinforce the house and he's got to replace things and he's got all this whole list of things to do. But continued weird things um, happen to, to this man and, and to his home um, during the course of his trying to make it a, a safe place for his family again. Yeah, the weird stuff starts out almost like immediately after his his wife and kid leave, and we won't go into too much detail. But um, like uh, the things that people are saying sound like they're weird, or he'll be thinking, "Oh, did I actually hear that? Did they actually say that?" There's some like lights being flashed that make him like kind of disorient him and stuff like that. So, not only does his home get invaded. Um, but on top of it, people, you know, it seems like something's messing with him, um, like right off the bat. And, um, so he wants to keep his family away until he knows the house is secure. Um, but the longer they stay away, the longer he's there to kind of, you know, get messed with by whatever is going on. And, um, yeah, it kind of escalates. <laughs> yeah. Escalates is a good word. Um, <laughs> really really like that story a lot um there were times uh during the course of that story where where i kind of felt his pain or, or his fear in some cases and, and maybe even his anger so i think it was written um very well and kind of spoke to me as a person um i can tell you right now there's there's a part where where he's in the house he's doing something someone's like just starts pounding on his door and i'm telling you my my, my heartbeat sped up a little bit you know just mm-hmm. being in that house with him and then having this happen and that's pretty early on in the story. And it, it goes it goes much farther. You know, it progresses or escalates, as Rob said, you know, through the course of the story. So uh, definitely, definitely a, a great um, novella length story. And it, it kind of plays into what I think is um, Jeremy Robert Johnson's kind of one of one of the things that I think is, is a quality of his is that he will root a story so solidly in reality and in the feelings that we all feel. So he takes something normal, like your house getting broken into, and he identifies, well, what is someone going to be going through? Like Livius was saying, um, well, they're going to feel violated. They're going to feel like they need to protect themselves. They're, you know, they're going to be paranoid. Every sound is going to be something suspicious. So he takes all that normal stuff that everybody goes through, and then he adds that weird element to it, you know, the weird, either supernatural or, you know, just weird, weird for weird um, in, in a great way where the whole time you still feel like you're the person you can so sit in the, in the, in the perspective of, of the, the, you know, the protagonist, even though all this weird, crazy, you know, outrageous stuff is going on. Um, so yeah, he really, I've never thankfully been in the situation where my home was broken into and, um, that's nice, but I mean, I know people who have, so reading this, it felt very authentic. <laughs> Livius had a Kindle once. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. Someone someone violated my car and, and took my Kindle. <laughs> what I was going to say was, and Rob will have the option of editing this out. Um, Rob, how, how, how what's the longest your home has ever been unattended, though, by you? Ah, good question. <laughs> See, and I was thinking about, as I was saying that, I was thinking, like... <laughs> Um, I'm going in a different direction um, because not only am I out in California asking people to punch me in the face, I'm basically saying I'm also not at home. But anyway, well, Livius is definitely saying it. 
Um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and I swear on a regular basis, my brother or I would leave the house forgetting to close the front door. And so, like, our actual house, the door to our house would actually be sitting open all day long until we got home from school. I mean, like, oh, I forgot to shut the door again. And, like, nothing ever happened. How your mother didn't beat you and your brother on a regular <laughs> basis is beyond me. We did have two I... very intimidating Dobermans living in our house, okay. so right. it does help. On the flip side, I grew up in the city of Chicago, and I, to this day, double lock the door like behind me as I walk in the house. We actually did have, and, and we're not sure, I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it would have been a long time ago. Um, we we lived in an apartment building that had an enclosed back porch. Yeah. Does that make sense? So there was like a locked door to get to the back porch. That's how people would like go down and you know take out their trash or do laundry and yep. stuff. And uh, one morning, oddly enough, would I that believe be... this is on a... Would that be where the gangway was? Uh, the like, so the porch led out into the gangway. In the gangway. All right, cool. I wanted to make sure I had a good. Yeah, but it was enclosed. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on a Saturday morning, I believe it was, and I was young, eight, ten, maybe. Um, my mom woke up to what sounded like something. Um, if you've ever dropped like a bottle of shampoo into a bathtub, it's like a really loud noise. Sure. So she was able to identify that something fell in the bathtub, but that nobody's nobody's awake. You know, my dad's sleeping next to her. I'm probably not up because I'm a kid and I'm not up at 630 in the morning right. for anything. Right. So she goes in there. And oh, God, finds, who's taking a bath in your bathtub? <laughs> no, listen, she finds a couple. So we had a it was really strange setup. There was a window inside the bathtub, you know, what I mean, like on the wall in yes. the bathtub. Yeah. That had that weird like frosted glass you can't see through. But it right. opened up to the back porch, which was really weird if you think about it. That a, yeah, that but a I can visualize what yeah. you're saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that window had been opened, raised from the outside um, several inches, and uh, she thinks that somebody might have been trying to take all the bottles of soap and shampoo and conditioner <laughs> and shout to get into the apartment because it was open. She found some things on the porch, but then she found the bottles knocked in, too. So, so by she, the time she figured yeah. out what was going around and ran around to the back door to see what was going on, there was nobody there. But definitely somebody had had lifted that window up and had made some attempt either to just steal toiletries <laughs> or perhaps to make their way into the apartment. And if you go into someone's apartment at 630 in the morning on a weekend, that's really fucking scary. That's, that's how not, you get shot. <laughs> well, but uh, just think about that, though. That's somebody that's, you know, home invasion. That's not like I'm going to try to get in while these people are out and steal their TV. Right. That's not you burglary, know, that's robbery. Yeah. Well, and it could be murder. I mean, that's kind of scary shit. Yeah. So, at any rate, maybe that's what um, the sleep of judges, maybe that touched that off in me, being a kid and being terrified that somebody was coming to the house. So, <laughs> could I mean, to be fair, mm-hmm. someone could have just been like, man, I'm out of prel. And yeah. I needed to. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. Actually, maybe I, I like hurt. Yeah, a pert. A dice, dice clay <laughs> reference. Right, nobody's going to get one. <laughs> I actually had an apartment um, in my early 20s in the Rogers Park neighborhood in Chicago. And um, had the same kind of, not the exact same setup, but a similar setup with like the back entrance and the front entrance. And the back entrance had like a, a porch kind of thing. I was on the third floor. And I'm, I'm, laying, I'm laying around in my bedroom one day. Um... It's summer and it was really hot and there was no air conditioning. So I was just like laying like still, like just inert. 
and suddenly there's like a dude standing in my bedroom door <laughs> and it freaked me out and I was like what the hell's going on and in broken English because I think Spanish is his you know first language he explained something about being a guy who's fixing the plumbing or something and I was like how the hell did you get in here <laughs> so he takes me to the kitchen and he shows me that if you push up because there's a window next to the door and if you <laughs> If you push the window up, you can unlock the door from the outside. And I was like, oh, fuck. So I had to buy, like, a stick to, like, you know, keep the window from opening up. Dude, that's, I mean, that's still a real questionable way for, like, the handyman to get into your apartment. (laughs) Well, he basically told me he broke into the apartment. But I was like, I mean, he was a little dude. He was, like, maybe five feet tall. This is a little tiny dude. So cat burglar sized. Cat burglar size, yeah, but okay, dressed in like you know a t-shirt and jeans. And the moment I stood up, you know, I knew that there was I was I could handle my situation, but that freaked me out. That freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's get now that we've had both of our um, um, possible burglar fears <laughs> addressed. Um, why don't we go ahead and give this? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. We could do a wrap up. I feel like we've been wrapping this up since we started. Um, I'm cool I to go right to a like rating. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Rob. What do you got? Dude, I love everything that I've read from Jeremy Robert Johnson. Um, and I don't think this book is any different. So I'm just going to jump right to, I don't need to wrap this up. I'm just going to give him five stars. Yeah, I I love that he does a mix of bizarre stories and, and really, you know, whatever, kind of everyday life stories. Not necessarily everyday life, but non-fantastical stories. Um, so I'll mention one more story because I'm staring at it and I can't believe that I didn't pick this ahead of my other story. Um, that States of Glass about the woman whose husband dies in a car accident. Yeah. Holy shit, man. There's some really serious shit in there. Like, you know, it, it, and it, it, I feel like we had this conversation two, three years ago when we reviewed his last collection. Um, he hits on the standard fiction and everyday stuff and in, in a way that you can really feel it. And I know you kind of address this, but then he can go this completely other direction where we've got a guy in a suit made of cockroaches and it's just as good. So I, I'm, I'm always excited by, by Johnson stuff. And this is a, easily a five-star collection. Woohoo. That works out nicely. Cause we're about to interview him and it would be real awkward be if terrible. we both like, yeah. hated the yeah. book. Well, but you know, he's not going to hear what we, Oh, one of these days we're going to set one of these up. We're going to be like, I didn't get any of this book. It's like two and a half stars. And we'll be like, welcome to the show. (laughs) The guy like listens back to it. And we just shit panned everything he did. I think that's a great thing about the way that we orchestrate this is they don't know what we say sometimes until after the interview. So we can do whatever we want to. We do what we want. That's right. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming back on and taking some time with us on Booked. It's always a pleasure to have you uh, with us. Pleasure is all mine. You will have none of my pleasure or your pleasure. It's all mine. You will, your experience will be pleasure-free. Are we, we're going to get in a pleasure fight right away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pleasure battle. We're like, saving that for towards the end of the interview. Yeah. But if you guys want to do it now, if you guys got want to get pillows. And, the big and pleasure, pleasure pillow fight. Mm-hmm. Adam Ant's pleasure vampire. <laughs> the finest we, vinyl I own. I just want to say for for listeners who don't understand, he just mentioned a vinyl record. We spent way too much time talking about AOL email addresses before we started actually recording for the interview. 
Um, uh, so we're gonna have we talked about Galaga. So yeah, really, video this games, is gonna be yeah. like a very '80s style, yeah, an '80s <laughs> style um, interview here. I think coming, coming up hot on 40, you guys. I turned 40 in uh, September, so it's gonna be real old Tommy. I'm gonna be talking about sarsaparillas. Oh, you wow. kids are oh, so cute. You kids are so cute when you turn 40. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm I'll be 39 this year, so I'm right. I'm right uh, there. I'm right next to you. Kids. Yeah, Livius. I don't oh. know if you know this. Livius is 53. He's 112 years old. Yeah, yeah. In, in vampire years. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start by talking about Swallowdown Press, or, or the official. Um, uh, I don't even know what to say. How, how to say it? Like, like Swallowdown Press is no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it was on a it was on a long hiatus, and then I just kind of realized that I wasn't. Uh, actually going to bring it back and uh, decided to give those all the folks I've worked with, give them their rights back and get them uh, get those books back out into the world as fast as as they wanted them to and uh, try to try my hand working with other uh, small presses and independent presses and and uh, see what happens next. So, yeah, I did. I think, shoot, 2006. Anyway, I did a really long stretch in the independent publishing game and and uh, had a good time with it and just decided to uh, move on to other ventures. So yeah, I compressed all, uh, all those books out of existence over a two or three month spread. And, and um, now I'm doing new projects. I do want to say that um, I don't remember hearing anybody complain about rights or anything. Uh, And that's odd because it seems like not a week goes by that. I don't hear somebody complaining about a publisher not giving them their rights back or, or or whatever. So kudos to you for for having what what at least seems like from this standpoint kind of a flawless um, press closing. No, we uh, the timing the timing worked out perfect because uh, actually all, all my contracts had a, a five year uh, clause for them going back into publication. And so so I was actually able to get all the books released on the press at least out to their five year term of of uh, being published. Before I contacted anybody about, um, you know, shutting down the press. And so everybody kind of felt like, hey, yeah, this book had its fair run. It got out there. You know, we did as well as we could by it, given our zero dollar publicity budget and all that. And uh, and um, the other thing that happened in the background is literally within a two day time period, almost every title that was out on Swallowdown Press got picked up by other presses um, because I wasn't doing this out of you know, I was doing it because it's not a project I wanted to do anymore, but the books were financially successful. And two of them, uh, Cody Goodfellow's Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars and uh, J. David Osborne's By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends, were actually, you know, by any kind of independent publishing gauge, really successful. Um, So it was actually just kind of everything was amicable and they were like, sure, yeah, do your thing. And I was, um, yeah, it all worked out surprisingly good which makes me wonder if there's like something lurking underneath somewhere i'm gonna knock on wood if i can right now <laughs> but yeah yeah things went really well i don't know if this question is going to go anywhere i'm going to preface that before i ask it perfect i'm excited <clears throat> so is there any uh any you kind of mentioned a couple titles but anything that you're you're excited about or surprised about from from your swallowdown titles getting picked up again uh I think one of the things um, I, I saw the uh, new cover for Cody Goodfellow's All Monster Action, which is a super gonzo 
um, you know, sci-fi horror kaiju monster battle thing that's as far over the top as as anything I've ever read in my entire life. Hugely entertaining. Like um, I guess uh, Guillermo del Toro read it, and he actually goes to a bookshop where Cody works, and he he was pointing at one of the illustrations, and he, right after he put out Pacific Rim, and he was like, "Man, I wish I would have thought of that," you know, stuff like that. So it's it's a fantastic book, and um, Kingshot Press, Michael Kazepis's press, is uh, going to be re-releasing that, and they did a uh, cover for it that looks like a bootleg VHS tape. That just I, I loved it. It's like it's like the perfect cover for this uh, book. So I was really excited about that. And then um, the other thing that was kind of interesting to me is J. David Osborne's actually taken a couple of his books out of circulation for a while. Originally, he was going to pump them right back out on Broken River, and he's decided to uh, let those sit for the time being without. Uh, being put back out in the world. So I'm just intrigued as to uh, what's going to happen with those titles when they've disappeared. Cause people are, you know, even today people are posting like, Hey, wh- uh, where can I get this now? And he's like, no, it's done. That book's done. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see uh, if, and it, in what form uh, some of his stuff reappears. That's kind of interesting. That's the approach I think Disney takes with their digital releases, right? I mean, like their VHS tapes. I remember many, many years ago, like being really excited for some children that in just like 18 months, Sleeping Beauty would be available again. So maybe he's going to create a little bit of a a, a groundswell for, um, yeah, for some so. of those I've, titles. I, I backlogged a bunch of print copies of his titles just in case, you know, or, you know, he goes to jail or, you know gets into some kind of scandal so I can sell them, you know, on eBay for a lot of money. And so, uh, fingers crossed, you know, the value <laughs> goes up and, and all of a sudden I have my nest egg. So, uh, no, we'll see, uh, Disney, man, I used to work at a video store and you know, they, they'd take that stuff out of circulation forever. And when they wouldn't announce it was coming back, it would be less so kids getting excited about it and more these, you know, middle-aged Disney collectors that were like, couldn't be more excited about the fact that, you know, they were finally going to get a shot at having Aladdin on DVD. Um, that's uh, all right. That's cool. Um, I do want to say, though, going back to the J. David Osborne thing that um, I have been for a long time. Actually, I've had my fingers crossed that he's going to jail, but for entirely different reasons. So. <laughs> because he's a bad person. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, yeah. He's, you know, uh, one of his books, Low Down, Death Ride Easy, it um, was put out in France to, like, serious acclaim and reviews by this uh, publisher, Rivage Noir, that does, like, Dennis Lehane and James Elroy's stuff over there. And he actually got to travel over there and have a, had a press escort and all kinds of stuff. And they gave him <laughs> the most significant advance of his life, which is funny because over here, you know, I'm working with Matthew Rivera to design a nice cover. We're working on the interior, doing the editing and stuff. But the the treatment he received over there was so vastly different. You know, I think he's also starting to realize what a book can do if you put it into the right hands and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, now that book is much more widely available in France than it is here in the States where he lives and in its native language. So that's interesting to me, too. The French have been buying up crime titles like yeah. crazy. I mean, David Osborne's just one of, I don't know, a dozen authors that I know that's, that's been published, paid to go to France. Like, they pay to go, yeah. you know what I mean, to do a reading, to do a signing. And most of them say the same thing. Like, I wish my book sold here like they do in France. Yeah. J. David even started, he started using one of those computer programs that's supposed to teach you French, you know, by a couple glops of vocabulary per day or whatever. Because he's like, I, I got to get back there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a very different, you know, do a, 
you do a reading in the corner of a bar here and five of your friends show up and then you drink yourself to sleep and you go over there and they pick you up in a car and send you around with a publicist and it's a whole whole different vibe. He should have gotten them to pay for the Rosetta Stone like DVDs or whatever for him <laughs> to learn French. If he was I'm thinking ahead. Guys, tell me. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um uh, talk a little bit about um, Entropy and Bloom, which uh, so Swallow Down we just mentioned is is had its nice graceful end, um, and now Entropy and Bloom is released on its Nightshade books or Nightshade Press or something like that, right? Yep. Or, yeah, which is an imprint of Simon and Schuster. Well, it's a uh, it's a weird division. So Nightshade is a division of this company called Skyhorse that picked up Nightshade back when they were having. Um, there was a different iteration of Nightshade back in the day that was Ross Lockhart and uh, this guy Jeremy and this guy Jason. And I always thought they were a fantastic press back then. They they introduced me to like Douglas Lane and Tom Piccarilli and a bunch of writers I really appreciated. And they had some some huge hits with like uh, uh, Paolo and I'm going to mispronounce his last name, Bacha Galupi. Uh, they had, they had some pretty sizable hits and then things went a little bit sideways for them. And this group Skyhorse came in out of uh, New York and picked up all their assets and did deals with the pre-existing authors and kind of took over the name. So Skyhorse has uh, a lot of those authors now and they're kind of continuing in the editorial tradition. And um, I liked what they've been doing with some of uh, Nick Mamatas' stuff. And so they actually contacted me and said, hey, we noticed, um, you know, your short fiction isn't out in uh, and doing a lot in the print realm. And we'd like to get it back out there. And would you consider doing a best of collection? Um and I said, absolutely. You know, those uh, uh, paperbacks are kind of well past their the original paperbacks, Angel Dust Apocalypse and We Live Inside You had kind of done what they were going to do. And um, I wasn't even that fond of all the stuff that was still out there in Angel Dust Apocalypse because some of it I wrote between a stretch of like, you know, 19 to 23. So to me, I look at that stuff and say, oh, that was me learning versus stuff I necessarily want in print. Um and so, yeah, they said, we, we'd like to get to your book out in hardcover and get you full trade distribution and some more exposure for your short work on the heels of uh, Skullcrack City. And I said, that sounds awesome. And we linked up. And, and then they said, well, your digital edition is going to be through this company called Start, which it turns out is some kind of tertiary subdivision of Simon & Schuster, um, which I only found out within like a week of their scandal they were having with um, – Milo. So that was interesting to me. I was like, oh, I finally get onto a, you know, one of the big five and they get, they start getting boycotted the next day. I was like, that's, that's wonderful. But um, yeah, so far the whole, uh, the whole relationship has been cool. The, the book they designed is just to me, it's exceptionally uh, well-designed. It's a really lovely book and they've been super cool to uh, work with. And, and we'll just, you know, we're only three weeks out from the launch and things are going pretty well. So fingers crossed it, continues to get out there and then in october for halloween we're dropping the uh paperback edition nice and you know they were like well it's kind of corny but we like to do horror launches in halloween because we feel like that's the market for it and i was like you guys this stuff isn't exactly like spooky you know there's there's zero <laughs> vampires in this book you know but uh I, anyway i acquiesced and said yeah let's let's do it and and so uh it's been pretty fun my my mom got to walk into a barnes and noble in her um small town where they don't have a lot of indie bookshops and availability and, and, uh, get something of mine off the shelf. So that, that was awesome. You know, 
I have so many questions. So first of all, man, you made your mom buy a copy of your book? Yeah. Oh, she wanted to. No, I, I <laughs> no, I know. I'm giving you a hard time. I heard that and I was like, here's his mom. And she's like, I gotta I need twenty four fifty so I can buy a copy of my son's book. No, um, second it, of all she actually she went in there and did the uh, the proud mom thing because there were there were three copies and by the time she got there there was only one left and so when she went up she was like you might want to restock it it looks like it's all out <laughs> and she was like <laughs> it's adorable. my son that wrote it you know <laughs> <laughs> that's adorable yeah that's uh, um, that's and- a great thing to be able to give give your mom the, the the chance to do for sure she asked for a publicist credit after that though and she wants to share so she's feisty wow the fast mom fast mom <laughs> and, and we we did notice the lack of vampires um in your book and we just like you to explain well i i'm kind of <laughs> i'm kind of scared of vampires i couldn't <laughs> i just can't i just can't do it they spook me dude you ever seen that movie near dark man bill paxton uh-huh. in near dark yes. i once I, I saw that when i was a little tiny guy and i actually before then i liked vampires i was like even even reading salem's lot and like second grade i was like vampires are kind of awesome except for the floating kid outside the window and i adored fright night i watched that that was my jam i had a vhs bootleg of fright night that i watched every week you know and then i saw bill paxton in near dark and it made the um the vampirism more like cannibalism and so human and intense and ugly and then ever since then i was like ah vampires are the worst man I often tell people that that is probably the best vampire movie to see, and I don't care if it's whatever thirty-five years old or something. Now it's it's still oh, the it's fantastic. Yeah. consummate vampire film. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. Let's talk a little bit about the sleep of judges. Um, I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I feel like there might be plans for like a scripted version of the sleep of judges. Maybe something in the movie realm. Am, am I am I close? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it wasn't my original intent when I was writing it. What happened was I was uh, two years ago. I was at BizarroCon on a Saturday night at a banquet, and uh, my one of my best friends came in. Uh, they were visiting, and he came in and said, "Hey, uh, your wife is on the phone, and your house just got burglarized." So I, you know, freaked out and got home, and we took care of that and dealt with all the aftermath. But it was one of those situations where. Uh, there were so many weird details to it and it was so intense. I was like, well, now I have to write something about this because that's like my, my thing is I exploit personal trauma. That's, that's kind of how and why I write. So, so after that happened, I just felt like, well, here's, I've got to find some way to, uh, to process all this shit that happened after the burglary. And then, uh, so it was something I always wanted to write. And then nightshade came along and said, Hey, do you want to do a best of book? And I said, I definitely do, but I want to, uh, put something new in there for, you know, pre-existing readers who are coming back to it. I want to give them, you know, a real reason to be excited about this book and give them something new instead of just, you know, a fancy version of what I've already done. Um, and so they said that sounds even better and, uh, got sleep of judges out. And now I have my fingers crossed that the guys who did the Susserus movie, um, can take a look at doing a, a film adaptation just because i with the length of it and the nature of it, I think it would make a, a fantastic kind of um, supernatural thriller. You know, I think it works. It could work as, in the kind of crime and horror elements. And uh, we could shoot it for that Bloomhouse Pictures amount of like three to five million bucks. And uh, I don't know. I, to me, I, my pitch for it is it's Straw Dogs meets Sinister. So fingers crossed. Uh, the, the only problem is right now those guys want me to write the script for it and i've got other contractual obligations so i just told them hey when you're out networking uh just tell them 
there's no script yet, but pitch them the idea. And if they give you any money, if they commit right away, <laughs> I'll cancel some other stuff and start. I'll I'll get a script out for you guys. So, yeah, fingers and, crossed. I, I think it'd be a fun film. You know, as I was reading it, I kept getting the same feeling I've been getting from some of the really good indie horror films I've seen over the last maybe two to three years, and that it would just be a great fit. And like I said, I had no idea that, that you had thought about you know about that, but I was reading it and I was like, ah. Oh, this feels like it's perfect for for that, you know, that that indie horror film. I mean, it probably started for me like with It Follows. And I yeah. could see this kind of in that same indie horror. I could see it on the same shelf as some of those yeah. great movies. So the other uh, kind of predecessor, I was I was talking to the um, the director and the special effects guy about it. I said um, there's uh, Mike Flanagan's first one he did before Oculus was called Absentia. And they they got like they filmed it for 90,000 bucks and they did a Kickstarter for it and filmed it mostly in a house but it has this very kind of um creeping you know at, at the beginning you don't know whether it's psychological or supernatural and then it just continues to escalate and become much more clearly this you know kind of um threat uh that's not necessarily human um and so I said, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful model for how we can pull off a very small independent feature. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely didn't didn't write the original novella. The, the main purpose of writing the novella was just to um, kind of get the actually getting burglarized out of my head. But then after that, I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this this could make a really really um, kind of fantastic blend of psychological thriller and and uh, horror film, and we'll see. So since we're talking about film. And and it came up a second ago. Um, can we talk a little bit about the the adaptation of When Susurrus Stirs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there is a there's an adaptation made. What's the actual? Is there is there a distribution timeline or plan or what's going on with it? It is. There are two or three options out there right now that the filmmakers are considering, and so um, I don't want to jeopardize any of the stuff they're potentially working on they've been out on the um, festival circuit for almost a year now and they've had some kind of some really cool offers and they're just trying to figure out what's the best next move for getting they, the main thing they want is for people just to see this thing because they you know they feel like it turned out great and they feel like it gets a really strong audience response and they want to get it in front of people um so the goal right now is to get it figure out what the main distribution point's going to be, whether that's a streaming service or whether that's inclusion in, in, you know, like a horror uh, short anthology or just popping it up on YouTube and crossing our fingers. They don't <laughs> take it off. So, um, it's a lot of crossing yeah, of fingers. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, and, uh, we definitely have to put a, a warning on it at the minimum. Um, but the other situation they're working with right now is, uh, there's a song, during the final sequence, it's um, Sinatra's I've Got You Under My Skin. And we were able, and I say we, but it's mainly Anthony, the director, was able to afford what are called the festival rights to that song. You know, it's uh, Sinatra is not cheap. So he was able to put that on there and show it at any festival he wanted to. But the full distribution rights to a Sinatra song are something like six times the budget for the whole movie. Uh, so they've decided they, for the full release version, they are going to have to pull that from the, uh, score during the final sequence. And so they're also working on rescoring that whole, uh, stretch with their main composer. So there's, there's a couple steps between us and, and, uh, everybody being able to see it, but we've been having tons of fun showing it at, at uh, festivals. 
that movie, that that short film is goddamn disgusting. It um, really con- con- consider consider that my review. I'm not saying yeah. it's a bad thing, but God damn it, man. I thought it was rough in the first like, I don't know, like like four minutes or so. And then it just progressively becomes more and more disturbing and foul and scary. So congratulations. Uh, I think yeah. they captured the essence of the short story um, perfectly. Uh, that being yeah. said. Um, if it does ever wind up on YouTube, I'm going to strongly caution you to consider <laughs> your life choices. If you're putting that on, you know, on a Monday afternoon, you've got I've got I've got 14 minutes to kill. I'm going to go ahead and throw on this this thing that these guys were talking about. Um, and, and I yeah, say I that I, I say that as congratulatorily as I can, because I yeah. think it was great. Um, and I think uh, I, I don't know what the budget was, but, uh, you know, you hear short film festival circuit and you go, OK, this is going to be literally shoestring budget and the effects are going to be cheesy or whatever. And no, this thing was really well done and super disturbing. I have one production question. Do yeah. you know he's laying on the on the, the black Wrigley pool? Yeah. Do you know how they yeah. did that? Yeah, they did. Um, uh, that is actually one of the few uh, digital shots in the film. They're one of their main goals uh, when they originally did the Kickstarter for, for it. That we did a Kickstarter for five thousand bucks to finance it, get it moving. Um, and they one of their pitches for it was that this was going to be primarily uh, practical special effects. That's what they sold me on too. We we spent you know uh, when they called me up, I was like, first of all, are you sure you want to adapt this story? Because that's insane. It's, it's literally the absolute last thing I ever wrote that I pictured somebody trying to put on film. Uh, and they were gung ho about it. And they talked to, we talked about the thing and the fly and practical effects and reading Fangoria and Gorzone as kids. And they, they sold me on uh, the idea that they could pull it off. And then, uh, so they came back around at the tail end and did those digital pickup shots. And so there's a couple things with uh, little gnats flying around. And then there's that shot, which is actually a super uh, uh, macro shot of leeches. They, they, got, they talked to a leech wrangler. They got leeches on site with the ASPCA present. They put them on a pane of glass and filmed all the leeches writhing over each other. Um, and then they created a digital composite of that and then uh, had the lead guy, the guy that plays a host, he's in a waterbed that's basically a giant green screen waterbed undulating and laying there and looking happy. And then they turned that whole thing into the landscape of uh, writhing leeches. And then the, the, the practical uh, susurrus worm pops up in the middle of that to talk to him. So it's amazing. Turned out really cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was pretty wildly impressed with what those guys were able to pull off on that budget. So I'm, you know. Super excited to see what they do next. I know they're they're getting some different offers now, so I'm I'm trying to tell them, hey, let's do more together. They're like, but you're busy. I'm like, no, no, no. Give me a couple months. Give me a couple months. Yeah, the the effects were just amazing. Uh, understanding that it was on the budget that it was, uh, my cut rate. So like when Livius told me that this 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 existed, my reaction was, wait, that story? Right. Like, that was like. They and then and I was thinking, well, there's no way they would have like it was more like you know a theater of the mind, like they imply things. No, it's all in there. Like every like so like if you're listening to this and you've read the story, and have not seen this movie, this video, they did it. Like that's all I can say. Like they did it. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that uh, that last two minutes. Uh, one thing I learned from watching it with an audience is to sit all the way at the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's hugely rewarding, and actually, uh, we just saw it up at the 
uh, Timberline Lodge up here near Portland at the Overlook Film Fest last Friday, and Anthony said, oh, yeah, I held us some seats at the back so you can uh, <laughs> enjoy it. We figured that out a couple festivals ago at H.P. Lovecraft because then you watch, you can literally watch the entire audience start to duck down and recoil in their seat uh, <laughs> during that uh, sequence in the theater. And so uh, that's super fun. And there's a couple laughs built into there, and then immediately after that, it just goes so far over the top that... Uh, it's it's fun to hear people breathe in and then not breathe for a while and then bust out laughing. It's it's just cool to see an audience respond so so much to something so absurd that I never thought would be on film, you know. All right. We know that uh, you said you're really busy. Is there anything you can talk about that you're busy working on or maybe what we'll see next from Jeremy Robert Johnson? Oh man. You know, I I've I've actually laid off uh I think Entropy and Bloom is the last project that I fully vague booked, but that's because I was also crowdsourcing the um selection for the short stories. I wanted to make sure it was it had uh, you know, the most popular stories from the readership and not just the ones that I thought were, you know, worked or not. Um so yeah, I kinda I on my, my biggest project I actually have a signed NDA, so I can't. I can't disclose anything about it. And then I've got another project coming out between that and now that I'm not talking about just because it's more fun to not talk about it <laughs> in a weird way. Um, but I would say that, that um, there will be new work from me probably sooner than people are expecting it. Uh, so, I will say excited. that of all, of all the times we've been told, like I, I there's things I don't want to talk about non-disclosure agreement that is the best excuse reason I guess I've ever heard. Like no one has actually ever said I have a non non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, congratulations. I, I, I'm not with that. Thanks. Yeah. yeah actually, congratulations on having a non-disclosure agreement, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And in his next short story collection, there's gonna be a horror story about signing a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. So. <laughs> be... For your whole life, don't disclose any of it. Yeah. <laughs> Take groceries, can't do anything. No, so um, yeah, new stuff is is coming, and it's coming a lot faster than it used to. My my old uh, production rate was a new book every five years, and my new goal is um something new every year until I can't pull that off anymore. So I'm I'm kind of looking to ape. You remember how like for a long time um like Polinick was putting out a book a year, mm -hmm. and it was just like oh I I know I can depend on certain authors to just come right back around. Or my friend Carlton, he actually produces three to four books a year, which to me, that's, that's, uh, madness, but he can pull it off physically. You know, he, he can sit there for that long. So definitely looking to, um, finally start getting stuff out there more frequently. Well, we look forward to, um, all of it. I think I speak for, for Rob on that as well. Jeremy, thank you for taking time, um, out of, again, what is a busy schedule apparently to, to talk to us. We really appreciate it, bud. Thanks. Oh, I have I have one more thing. Uh, okay, so you know how sometimes on podcasts people uh, they you, you hear them talking, they talk up other authors and stuff, and you get like this vague sense that mm -hmm. they're they're trying to curry favor a little bit so they can be like, oh hey, and there's a shout out to da 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 and da da on this one at you know such and such. So I want to do that, but I want it to be something um, uh, vaguely uncomplimentary about well, a couple people. I, I want to tag them. <laughs> I was going to say, really you, you filled that quota with J. David Osborne earlier, but <laughs> if you really want to push so, it. Okay, so uh, uh, David James Keaton, not great at hopscotch. Oh. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> he is, here first. I'm going to tell you, um, now that I'm living, uh, at least for the summer in California, I'm actually living very close to where he lives. And, he, <laughs> and I got invited to 
apparently some sort of him and him and his wife are having a party on Friday night. I didn't even tell Livius this yet. This is hot off the presses. And um, I guess they've made some sort of like homemade lemon alcohol beverage or something like that that he plans to poison me with. So, uh, so um, they've invited you to their house and they're making you a special drink. Yeah. Well, what could That's go wrong, right? Sounds good. Yeah, sounds, sounds legit so, to me. I'll make sure that I relay the message that he is not good at hopscotch. Yes. Uh, um, let's see. <laughs> Stephen Graham Jones. Not the world's best stenographer. There you go. Now you know. I feel like these like, are coded like messages. <laughs> yeah, I like that we're getting the dirt on these people because, you know, I don't know if Keaton's... Yeah, I'm not sure if Keaton's running around like, you know, the threatening hopscotch against people or whatever, but now people know. We know. Oh, uh, Max Booth the third takes too long to order it. Taco Bell. That's not a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> not a surprise at all. About <laughs> it. That fucking guy. Uh, all um, right. Say about these folks. I'm right. gonna make sure to tag them in. All right. Good. I'm glad we got to air out all that sexy laundry. Airing of grievances. <laughs> Thanks again, Jer- Jeremy. It's always so good to have you on. Oh, dude, yeah. Any any time you guys want somebody to fill up the air, I'll, I'll pop over, man. This is fun. Um, that is a guy that we don't have on nearly enough, and I think we may have solidified um, off air that uh, that maybe he'll be appearing a little more often. Um, definitely one of my favorite guests. Absolutely. Um, he's the writing has always been solid. His appearances have always been solid. He is just a solid dude. I'll take him back anytime we can get him. Yeah, and we found out that Max Booth takes too long to order Taco Bell, and this is all important information because you never know yeah. when you'll be in a drive-thru with Max Booth. So, yeah, next time you're in Texas, maybe you're like, "Why is this Taco Bell drive-thru taking so long?" Max Booth might exactly. be in front of you. You never know. So, um, thanks for listening. Um, next week, StokerCon Part Two. Um, a couple more interviews, a little more dish and dirt on StokerCon. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.